0: Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at The Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. This week in the studio, we have David Duchovny, uh, the multi-hyphenate artist, uh, actor, writer, musician. What'd you guys get into? So I I should start by saying how we got David here into the studio. Absolutely. Um, Which is through Pat McCusker, our sound engineer. Uh, David actually, and a lot of people don't know this, we didn't really get into it in the interview, uh, is a musician. Uh, He has two albums out, and Pat happens to play in his band. And make all of our
1: podcasts sound incredible.
0: Exactly. And you'll hear David uh, actually like say a couple things to Pat during the episode. <laughs> he, like, he clearly felt comfortable with Pat in the room. But yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting and kind of wide-ranging uh, look into David and his world going back to really you know the, the start of his career and also uh, his, his studies. A lot of people don't know this, but he was studying to get a PhD at Yale. You know, went to Princeton, uh, wrote a thesis on Beckett. Lifelong New Yorker. Lifelong New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about New York. We talked about LA. We talked about acting. We got deep into his work as a writer. He has three books, um, Holy Cow, Bucky Dent, and Miss Subways. And talked about sort of how he approaches all these different things in relationship to time and just uh, in relationship to how he channels his energy really at the end of the day it was an an interview about energy actually energy and magic fantastic i can't wait to hear this this is spencer with david duchovny Today on Time Sensitive, we've got actor, screenwriter, director, producer, novelist, musician, David Duchovny. Mm. Insanely prolific. Oh, thank you. I wanted to start this conversation on the subject of technology. Mm. Um, something, and, and kind uh, of, something
1: I know nothing about. Well, Perfect. well, it's interesting because <laughs> I,
0: I think it's it's worth mentioning you you have a very literary background in a way. Mm-hmm. Literary academic background. Yes. You graduated from Princeton in 1982. Uh, with a degree in English literature. Yep. In 82, you actually got it. Yeah. Your mm-hmm. poetry received an honorable mention from the Academy of American oh.
1: Poets. Yeah, honorable uh, mention. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the The title of your thesis actually at Prin- oh, that's the Princeton, I, ha- I had to I had to bring up, and then the yeah. one at Yale, of yeah. course, too. Yeah. So at Princeton, you, your thesis was the schizophrenic critique of
1: pure reason, reason in Beckett's early novels. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit specialized. I understand. I, yeah, I, I, I'm. I wonder why that wasn't a bestseller.
0: <laughs> you you then broadened your scope, I think, a little bit with the later one that, that, <laughs> that you didn't end up finishing. But you you earned your M.A. in English literature from Yale and subsequently began a, a Ph.D. Um, that remains unfinished. And the title of your doctoral thesis was is Magic and Technology in Contemporary Fiction and Poetry. Mm-hmm. So that's the technology connection. Right? Yes, that's what I figured. Um, What were you trying to say in that uh,
1: particular thesis? What was your sort of... Well, again, I I didn't finish, so and as you might know, in in any kind of uh, literary or really any kind of artistic project, there's the beginning inspiration, which which is the thought or the idea or something you want to express, and then in the course of making... It becomes completely different. That's kind of the fun and the magic of of, of making things. Right. It's like it's never what you thought. So I don't have the luxury of telling you exactly what it would have been <laughs> because I didn't do it. But I can tell you what I thought it was going to be. And the the overriding uh, thesis or the, or the 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 inspiration mm-hmm. for what was going to be a like a book length book of criticism. On uh, James Merrill, the poet, Ishmael Reed, the uh, novelist, uh, Norman Mailer, Thomas Pynchon, and a Canadian author named Robertson Davies. Mm. So those were the five authors I was going to be addressing. And the idea was to use the, the language of technology to discuss magic and the la- language of magic to discuss technology. And that in magic, there, there, historically, there seems to be fields of white and black magic, good and, and bad magic. But in technology, it's always been, if we can do it, let's do it. You know, mm. If we can go mm-hmm. to the moon, let's go to the moon. If we can make a nuclear weapon, let's make a nuclear weapon. Unfortunately, whenever a weapon is made, it gets used. There's never been a weapon yet in the history of mankind that hasn't been used. So my question was, why not pursue this line of inquiry through these authors who seem to be discussing technology in, in, in a magical way, in mm. that, maybe we should start to look at technology as magic and therefore as there's white and black magic mm. as there's good and bad magic then we should address technology in that way and not just as a neutral field of like oh we can do it let's do it 30 years ahead of your time it seems i wish i wish i would have uh, i wish i would again i wish i would have written it but i didn't <laughs>
0: I think it's worth bringing up the, the the. I don't know if you know the Arthur Clark quote, but there's a there's a pretty well known Arthur Clark quote where he says, "Any sufficiently advanced technology is
1: indistinguishable from magic." Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, I'm I'm such a luddite. I'm I'm so bad with technology. I, you know, a toaster blows me away still. So I'm I'm still at that level. <laughs> In Miss Subways, which is your latest novel,
0: yeah. uh, the the protagonist, Emer actually has sort of a technology perspective when riding the subway. Yeah. Um, she, she says, or it, from her point of view, it's, every day down here was like a new Stanford experiment. Thanks be to Jobs for the iPhone, which seduced a good number of the underworld travelers into a zombified and ha- harmless solipsistic reverie, though it also seems to embolden others by adding... A propulsive soundtrack to their passive ogling. It was as if they thought, like children, if they could hear you, then you couldn't see them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that based on sort of personal experience? Have you have you felt that way on the subway or with technology?
1: Well, I remember. I think I think it's if they couldn't hear you. They yeah, right, see, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So so I think. I mean, I remember having that thought, <laughs> and this will date me, having that thought with the Walkman. You mm-hmm. know, I actually knew the son. He was at Princeton. Uh, the son of like the chairman of RCA. So he had like this prototypical Walkman in 1982, and he said to me, hey, check this out. You can <laughs> you can have your music with you. You know, you can walk around this mm-hmm. little cassette recorder in a, in a plastic case. And, you know, then, of course, in the next couple of years, it became as ubiquitous as phones are now. Mm. And, and But they're gone. They're part mm. of, you know, like some fossil record. You know, nobody has a Walkman anymore. But uh, I noticed that people seemed to feel like they were invisible when they had this thing on, that almost you know they, they had disappeared in some way, and that they were in a movie. You know, they were in, they had a soundtrack, just mm. walking down the street. And you know, and, and we see it now. You know, it's the same now with people with their their headphones in. And I think you know, aside, I don't want to be moralistic about it, but it does it does separate people, and it also insulates people. I think in a way, you know, I we used to have to listen to the radio. And then you'd be at the mercy of the DJ, and you'd have to hear songs that you didn't know. But now I, I, I think people gen- and and I'm totally guilty of this. I listen to music I know and I like all the time, mm. and I I'm not forced out of my comfort zone, out of my own soundtrack, right? Know, to to listen. To the some. algorithm tells you what to like yeah, or what you well, really like. Well, yeah. Well, that's, it what you like. that's the the worst part is like it'll even send you music that's similar to your yeah. to the music that you like you know you're never going to venture yeah. out of what what you have decided is your is 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 your jam you know exactly well we will get to miss subways
0: in a little bit uh appropriately though this this morning i'm riding the subway yeah and i'm reading a recent issue of the new yorker there's an article in there about um technology and cars and toward the end of it there there's paragraph that I wanted to read, because I think it's very relevant in the context of this conversation. Uh, The author Nathan Heller writes, it is natural to think of innovation as a march of technical advances, each one finally paying the balance on a dream sold long before, the wheel, the cart, the carriage, the car. But the truth is that our technical capacities arrive too soon. From the Imperial Galleon to the atom bomb, it is hard to argue that the tools have struggled to keep up with us. A smarter futurism would focus less on pushing through advances and more on being sure we will use them wisely when they come.
1: Yeah, well, that sounds like my thesis. About yeah. <laughs> I was reading it and I'm yeah. like, oh,
0: this actually does sound like your
1: thesis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and good luck. I mean, it's just not going to happen. People like shiny new things. That's, that's the nature of it. We, mm. like to, we like to advance or to think that mm. we're advancing, and there's no way you're going to stop. Mm-hmm. That kind of innovation, even if it just means repackaging stuff. Right. And I understand you're, you're uh, an enthusiast for
0: electric vehicle technology, which yeah. which that article actually talks about. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, why? Why electric vehicles, and and what do you think that they can do to help make the world a better, healthier, cleaner place?
1: Well, I started driving a, an electric car in probably two thousand and I think like two thousand four, two thousand five, maybe earlier, two thousand three, maybe a little later, but it was a it was a Toyota a Rav four, and they made I believe they made four of them, mm-hmm. and for some reason. My ex-wife had an inn over at Toyota, uh, a friend of her father's, and I got to to buy this uh, electric vehicle, which which only got one in like, four in the world. Yeah, which only got <laughs> like eighty miles to the charge, so it wasn't it wasn't at all practical, really. I mean, it, it wasn't uh, you couldn't escape the apocalypse in that one. You know, you could only get eighty, and then you'd be you'd be done. So, uh, uh, but I loved I loved it. I, I lived in uh, L.A. at the time. I rarely was called upon to drive more than 80 miles in a day so Mm -hmm. i I could just use it and i had solar panels on the house so in in my estimation i was just recycling energy without any kind of carbon footprint or any kind of waste so that was early on i mean i was thinking about i don't i don't think i thought about climate change because that wasn't really in the daily discourse as it is now but i was thinking about pollution mm. and i was thinking about smog in terms of la back then so it was you know i wasn't i wasn't emitting mm. any carbons into the into the atmosphere so and, and how is your sort of electric vehicle
0: driving involved since the the route forward? well i
1: have uh, i have a tesla on order uh i live in new york i don't own a car here but in uh, in LA, I, I don't have a Tesla yet because I don't have a house where I can charge it. <laughs> uh, but uh, I I'm building a house there, mm. and uh, I'll have the, when when that's done in, in April, I think I'll I'll get my uh, Tesla, which mm. I'm looking forward to. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful piece of uh, machinery, I think. <laughs> You mentioned climate change. I
0: know renewable energy has been a, a big... You, you've been a an so advocate a, activist yeah. in that arena. Um, I even noticed you you tweeted recently a story by David Wallace-Wells who wrote the book The Uninhabitable Earth, mm-hmm. um, which is incredible. Yeah. Uh, and I know you've also posted or shared things from Bill McKibben who mm-hmm. kind of is one of the, the original writers on climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Why... Or how did you start coming into thinking about renewable energy? And, you know, was it just the sort of mass conversation
1: happening around it? or I think, uh, I, I don't remember how exactly. Uh, it, it was really through that archaic term pollution that we used to talk about, you know. And and, and just realizing at some point and having children that, that uh, you know, this was going to be the earth that, that they inherited. It wasn't... It was more of a cleanup prospect when I started it. Like, let's keep it clean. Let's let's make it. Uh, let's leave it the way we found it. And it wasn't what we know it to be now, which is uh, you know, literally a, a matter of life and death for the planet. So the stakes have changed, and the discussion has changed, and the intensity around the discussion has changed, and the lines drawn on either side of it have changed because it's hard to ask people to sacrifice you know people aren't they, they don't want to do less than the generation before if you just talk about technology mm-hmm. as well uh, they don't want to use less than than the the generation before and it's always been uh expensive to be a conservationist and and, and therefore You're you're open to charges of elitism, you know. Oh, you're wealthy enough to be a conservationist, Mm. and those are all legitimate, you Mm. know. But still, we're stuck with this problem, yeah, that we got to solve. Yeah, it's a
0: global trauma, really. Right. How do you personally navigate this? Um, Just sort of in terms of how you 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 cope with it internally, and you know whether whether it is climate change or some of these. Well, the
1: thing the, the thing that makes climate change so difficult to address is the same reason why i can let it go for days and weeks at a time you know it's not it's not a pressing issue it's psychologically on on a person in their day-to-day life therefore i could go i i I could have gone the last week without thinking about it And here i am talking about it and getting you know depressed and anxious about it again sorry to do that (laughs) but it's it's just that conundrum it's 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 so difficult to address because first of all yes the science is in but it's not perfect science nobody can actually predict what's going to happen Mm -hmm. we can have scenarios also there are natural ice ages and natural hotter ages for this planet that that humans have nothing to do with uh so you know, I'm a hundred percent believer in that that we are responsible and we're screwing it up, but also I can't say a hundred percent that the earth doesn't have its own right nature and is going through its own hot flashes and mm. cold flashes and all mm. that. So y- there's always going to be wiggle room on the other side for people to say, Hell, you know, there was an ice age, it's going to come back. You know, mm. it's there's nothing we can do about that, mm. you know, so let's just. Let's use this earth that God has supposedly given us. He's given it to us to use. You know, I, I'm not a subscriber of that. I would say more. He's given it, or or we have been given it to take care of, or to be stewards of. Mm. We'll get off climate change in a second. Yeah. I, I have <laughs> one, one sort here. of last
0: question connected to this idea of, of magic and and technology. And it, and it obviously most people know you, um, at least those of us who watched television in right. the 90s as Agent Mulder on The X-Files. Um, the show is, of course, about extraterrestrials and to a certain extent about magic and technology. Yeah. Did it get you thinking about, I mean, you're living in that headspace of this character for so long. Did that get you thinking about magic and technology in these new ways
1: no no I can't <laughs> uh, those are two it's almost like those two parts of my brain didn't really talk to one another mm. uh, you know I had I had the job as as an actor to do and it was a, a great job and it was um, it was a lot of work just to stay on top of what you have to do in in, in terms of being a, a, a series lead on a show as physically and, and kind of verbally demanding as that so sometimes i'd just be memorizing signs words you know and they they didn't even go deeply enough for me to even think about what i was saying you know if you can imagine that but no i mean obviously i'd been thinking about it before that and i i don't think that i ever even made that connection like wow because i had never been a a fan of science fiction Mm. i remember liking the movie alien that's about it i wasn't a big star wars fan i wasn't a comic book guy um so I had never made the connection between my thesis that never happened mm-hmm. and uh, the the show. Mm-hmm. I, I, I see it now, and it's 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 possible that there are no mistakes, you know, and you're led places where you're supposed to go or where you're where you lead yourself unconsciously. But I had never thought of it that way because I was as an actor, you're you're working beneath the lines, you know, you're not working on what's actually being said. You're working on making it believable. In a human way not mm. not in an intellectual way so i didn't i didn't address i wouldn't address a specific uh script intellectually i'd address it emotionally or or as an actor would and and therefore those issues wouldn't really arise to me
0: right Did that experience change how you think about science fiction comic books are you are you more into that world now N- no it it didn't
1: <laughs> i'm amazed that Hollywood and much of filmed pop culture has been taken over by the kind of stuff that we did. I didn't see that coming. I I wasn't an advocate for that. You know, I I didn't say you know we this is. I just thought we were a good show, and that's why we were were doing well. You know, it didn't have to do with a, a change in, in what was going to be accepted in Hollywood. But now I look at you know the the movies uh, the the movies that Hollywood produces, not the independents, uh, and they're they're solidly, you know, it seems to me ninety percent of them are science fiction comic mm-hmm. book type mm-hmm. type films. So um, it completely caught me off guard. You mm-hmm. know, I didn't I didn't see it. I thought we were an aberration. <laughs>
0: I want to go back to the, the 60s, New York. You're, you're growing up here. Your, your mother's a school administrator and teacher. Your, your father's a writer and a publicist. He worked, I understand, for the, the American Jewish community, which was a Jewish advocacy group. Committee, yeah. Committee, yeah. What was your relationship like with your parents and, and growing up here? What sort of impact did they have on you as a sort of kid and then writer? Uh,
1: well, my mother is an immigrant uh, from Scotland, and as, as a as a Jew, my father also felt like an immigrant, or feels like an outsider mm. to me. So I, I I think in many ways, I felt like an immigrant myself. In a way, uh, I wasn't an immigrant, but, mm. but it was
0: it was your paternal grandparents that
1: that, that uh, yeah. Came my here father from... was was born in the states. Mm. Yeah, but they but, they but came from uh, Ukraine and Poland. Yes, right? yeah. So there was a sense always to me that, that uh, you know, America was, was not something I was born into so much as something that I was living in and, and, and that we would look at for, from the outside. But I was a New Yorker before I was an American. I, I, I felt solidly mm. at home in this city, and as did my father, my mother not so much, even though oddly she's 89 and still lives here. She's just, <laughs> <laughs> she's still here, you know, in this city that she never really wanted to come to in the first place, I don't think uh so i had kind of a i guess uh an outsider view even though i was born on the inside mm. and you know born maybe in the most american city there is i had that legacy i guess and as a as a writer my my mother as a as a uh she she grew up in a very small fishing uh village in the north of scotland and I believe she's the first person, definitely mm. the first woman, to get a college education in her family. So of that generation in that country at that time, getting a college education, becoming mm. literate, mm. was the way out. That was your, not just upward mobility, but it was, it was the bettering of the person. It was, uh, it was a way out. So she instilled that in me, even though it wasn't necessarily the case for me, you know, a kid growing up in New York City, it wasn't like that. But, you know, that was her still to this mm-hmm. day. I mean, I'm going to go visit her after I do this, and uh, she's going to ask me about my next book. That's all she cares about, you know. And and, and as soon as that one's done, she's going to ask me about the next one. It's like it's, it just never ends. Her Her hunger for... Like literary output or just reading was always, uh, Mm -hmm. I had to be reading. And my dad, you know, as a writer, closet writer until he was 72, he published his first novel at the age of 72. Which which I think it's worth saying was um,
0: well reviewed in the New York Times. It's it's called Coney. I actually have a note here. Uh, the, the, The Times described it as able to transport readers swiftly into the garish and Steamy heart of Coney Island on the eve of World War II. Yeah, adding that it's as satisfying and as exhilarating as a ride on the Cyclone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they said that. Yeah, oh, that's, that's, that is nice. Who wrote? I wonder who wrote that one. Yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, so so my dad was born in '27. So for him to write, the protagonist of his book is a child, a little younger than my dad would have been. I think my dad was 18 when the war ended. Hmm. My dad, you know all his heroes were literary and, and sports but mm. he loved Joe Namath uh, <laughs> he loved Willie Mays he loved uh, Sandy Koufax and his his father was a newspaperman and reporter correct yeah for a for a yiddish newspaper here in uh, the city called the uh, forward mm. it was the last yiddish daily daily yiddish paper uh, so so you're you're sort of the the third generation writer i guess yeah you know it's funny because uh Growing up, I, I knew my dad said he was a writer, but he didn't. He didn't really write, and and he would he did publish a number of books that were kind of pastiches. He he he, for for extra money, he would put together these political satire books. He he wrote the Wisdom of Spiro T. Agnew, which was ridi- ridiculous quotes of Agnew. Agnew was like Trump before Trump. <laughs> you know, he was just an adult who said ridiculous, stupid things and and a criminal. And uh, my dad put his quotes kind of facing one another that were completely opposite and made him out to be the fool that he was. So that was one little book. And so if he
0: were still with us, we'd, we would have a Trump book.
1: Yeah, but it Trump is just, it just doesn't <laughs> matter. You know? I mean, back then it was like, oh my God, this idiot is in a position of power. And now we all know that, but yeah. there seems to be very little to do. So he wrote the Establishment Dictionary, which was... To use words from the establishment, like uh, like say Nixon or Agnew, as if they were nouns and verbs, and then he would do false Latinate or or different language derivations of them that would make fun of the people. Sounds very great in Carter, actually. <laughs> yeah, like to Agnew, I think was like to from the Persian a- Agnewi, or like to bleat like a sheep or something like that. So he would do these things, and he'd he'd make some cash and and. Uh, he wrote a play that was on broadway in 1967 called the trial of lee harvey oswald mm. which was not funny <laughs> <laughs> although you know mel brooks could have definitely done a producers with uh, with that play you know it was that bleak that if they would have made it a musical comedy it would have done better it closed in a week and it was uh, only 4 years after the assassination so mm. my dad always thought it was just uh, it was too soon you know uh people weren't ready but the, the 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 conceit was if oswald hadn't been assassinated and had had sat trial uh, what would that trial have been mm. and that's that was the play
0: and, and so your dad also it seems had a sense of humor which is kind of spawned into he did. He, was, you did he was
1: very kind of uh he he said to me uh once he said i'm leaving you i'm giving you the best thing a father could ever give a son i'm not very successful <laughs> <laughs>
0: In your second book, of course, there's there's a very close father son relationship, um, yeah. but uh, difficult
1: dynamic. Yeah, that is nothing like my father at all. That is that is just a creation out of out of necessity to drive the story. Mm. I just kind of made up that character. Mm. Uh, my father was not a hard ass. He wasn't uh, <laughs> abusive. Uh, I heard
0: you describe him on NPR as gentle or permissive. So. Yes, yeah, he was very gentle and
1: uh, I, you know ironic. Uh, playful. Uh, yeah, he's uh, nothing nothing like the character in the book. <laughs> so before you you
0: even thought of becoming an actor, yeah. you had literary aspirations. When did those start? Where did where did those come
1: from? Probably through my father. You mm-hmm. know, I I just wanted to to be like him or to kind of figure out what it was that interested him and did it interest me? So I would have... uh hear my stomach there, Pat? Did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> it was good. Let's save that one. We'll put it on put it on the record. Uh, yeah, I just wanted him to like my writing, I guess. I'm, I remember giving him papers that I'd have to write, like, in sixth grade. And, and if he didn't love them, I would just get so angry at him. You know, and he he'd suggest changes, and I would just yell at him and tell him he was wrong. And I just wanted him to love what I did. Mm-hmm. So from both my parents, real... A real respect for writing mm. to be able to express yourself to be able to to think uh to, to this day I, th- I i think better as a writer than i do as a somebody who just kind of stews and thinks of things i'm i think better with a pen in my hand hmm yeah, I notice you. You know, on Twitter, for example, you're definitely
0: not a reactive Twitterer.
1: No, I'm. No. I'm. I'm, I, 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 I'm a, a Twitter just. Yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of stay off of it. You, you, there is this idea, um,
0: and especially in uh, Bucky fucking Dent, of the child self versus the adult self. Yeah, and I'm curious do you do you think back about your your child writing versus your adult writing? Um, hmm. Is is there a, a sort of through line or a
1: parallel there? Well, you know, it's funny. It's a good question because, uh, and I've never said this, but the there's a couple of of uh, the character in, in Bucky Dent finds some old notebooks and and there's like journaling or or some notes that he wrote as as a young boy that he remembers and it's quoted in the in the book because he's kind of looking at it in wonderment, thinking, "Who's this kid that is so concerned about his bowling average and stuff like that?" Like I don't even remember liking bowling. So, uh, uh, you know, it's like, it's a totally different person, but those were lifted, you know, literally Mm -hmm. my mother just happened to hand me these notebooks of mine. most of which were filled with me playing this dice game, dice baseball game that I used to play just pages and pages of games, nine inning games that I played of teams against each other with my own, just these two dice. But there was also pages of my bowling statistics and (laughs) basketball statistics and some diary-like entries. And I I used them verbatim. I changed the name of my buddy in the one so that I wouldn't piss him off because I called him lame or something in it. But uh, other than that, (laughs) um, those those were taken right out of these notebooks. And I just remember Mm -hmm. thinking, God, that's just like so interesting because when you have kids of your own, you try you think you can talk to them like adults. You think you can when they're mine are older now, but when they were young, you think, Oh, they they must be reasonable people and they probably want and think about the same things I do. But then I, I look back at myself when I was ten and see what I was concerned with and the way that I thought and it's it's just a different person. Yeah.
0: Do you do you remember the first thing you wrote um that you felt had true literary value or was sort of something you were proud of? Um
1: no, not really. Uh I, I think there were a couple of uh papers in college that I thought were pretty good. Mm. Uh, cri- criticism. Uh but fiction-wise, I think I wrote a short story in college that I thought was pretty good. But really, I, like my dad, I really didn't start. I didn't start till I decided to write holy cow, you know, uh mm six years ago or five or six years ago, whatever mm. it was. So I I think that my style uh, changed without me knowing it. I think I just, I became a, a better writer by not writing for a while mm. somehow. I think I just became a better thinker.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm, there, there must've been some, evol- quite an evolution um, to go from, this more sort of theory based work to yeah. writing a, a story where the, the your first book, Holy Cow, is that the protagonist is a cat. Yeah.
1: Well, that was the. I felt I was pressuring myself. I, I had some time off, and I was I was just like, well, much like my dad must have pressured himself at some point when he when he got a little older, was you said I've said you're I'm a writer. Let's let's I mean I'd written screenplays I'd written teleplays I'd I'd gotten stuff. That I'd written produced as drama, comedy, whatever, but not as fiction, not as prose. So I, and then I thought, well, of the ideas that I have that are that I think might sustain a novel length treatment, the one about the animals seemed the least uh, pressure, mm. because I could kind of write with an abandon in a way that because I I would be addressing. I didn't know the audience quite so well. I didn't know if it was adult. I I thought it was kind of a a, a hybrid where I would address kind of a kid's story skew it towards adults, and I felt like I could uh, that would be liberating for me uh, not to write like a, the great American novel, like my first <laughs> not not trying to die on that hill, my first time out. So it just felt very unpretentious, and I could just kind of uh, free associate my way through it. Mm. Uh, and also, I didn't think I'd be held up to any kind of standards of realism. You know, this is a talking cow, pig, and turkey. So, you know, it's it's obviously in another realm, right? And
0: and Miss Subway's your latest book also kind of has that fantastical, yeah, hyper real, hyper yeah. realist or
1: yeah, yeah. The one that I just finished, my mother will be happy to know, is is just in the real world and just in the present day, and is is this would be my my epic kind of American scope novel. Mm. Do you think the fact that, um,
0: you know, after leaving Yale, becoming an actor and then later, you know, two plus decades later, returning to writing was liberating for you in a way that, that it it took some of the, the heat or the pressure off that
1: you might've felt trying to do that. Oh, if I'd done that out of the gate, um, Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, there's there's something to be said for having to write for your dinner. You know, you're certainly going to get some words out. And I think the fact that I was well fed probably inhibited me from writing before. I didn't need to. Nobody was asking me to, and my kids were going to be okay if I didn't. But on the other hand, you know, the fact that I, I, of course, I'd love everything I write to be a bestseller, but it's not. I, I, I don't need it financially. I, mm. I'm, I'm free artistically that way to pursue what I want, what interests me. Uh, that's a great. Uh, mm. benefit yeah, and too. I mean, there's also this idea, you know the of
0: urgency there's yeah you know, that the writing oftentimes when you have a sense of urgency
1: well i would have had the urgency if i started when i was 22 the urgency mm-hmm. of making a career the urgency of this is what i want to say mm-hmm. but but in a way you know being quiet for so long not writing for so long gave me a different kind of an urgency when i did start mm-hmm. which is interesting to me and 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 was really a wonderful thing for me as an artist because You know, I've been acting for 30 years, uh, you know, directing, just living in that world and and happy with it, you know, happy to do those jobs and to solve those problems. But um, to start something new, and we did it with with Pat, with with the music as well, to, to start something new has a real kind of urgency to it that is different from... The urgencies of uh, mid-career or yeah. late-career, whatever you know, of something that you've been doing for a while, and yeah. uh, I love that kind of unknown and that
0: that energy to it. And I think time too is is an important role here. You know, you, your your perspective shifts with this time, and of course, um, the older you get, the less time you have on Earth. So there's probably a certain element there as
1: well. Yeah, I think so. You know. I don't want to be maudlin about it, but but really I, I feel, you know I think about when I'm gone and I think about my kids, and you know, I always think if they want to know what I was like, you know, as an adult, because they're they're close to being adults, and hopefully I'll live long enough to for them to get to know me. But they could read the books, you know, and they could really get in my head and in my heart, you know seeing me perform is one thing it's you can get a sense of me whatever you can be in my presence probably more immediately by watching something and i'm thinking my kids again but if you really wanted to know who i was mm. just pulp these books and and make a shake out of them and swallow it down and then you i they'd know me and i and i think that's a that's a gift from me mm-hmm. to them in a way right of your or I guess we've talked a little bit about each of
0: your books. Can you reveal anything about the next one?
1: Well, it's it has to do with with really with with America and and capitalism and religion and uh, and yet it's a it's a rollicking action filled story of the West. I think it takes place in California, which is different mm. from all, all these books that take place. Mm-hmm either i think they're all in new york state i don't think i don't know where i said holy cow was but i think it's somewhere you know up here in the northeast so it's my california book and it's my attempt at like kind of an epic sweep of uh it's about a former stuntman which is weird because this tarantino film just came out (laughs) (laughs) here they go (laughs) shit no but i i I saw it too and and i liked it but but uh you know the the protagonist is a a a stunt man who uh, who undergoes a a religious conversion. Mm-hmm. It's very different from mm-hmm. from that. So um, yeah, I mean that doesn't tell you much, but that just tells you <laughs> a little bit. I want to talk a little bit more about craft and
0: writing, and then get into your uh, acting work. Mm-hmm. What is your sort of process when
1: you sit down to write? Like what what what's going through your head? It's a good question. I mean, uh, for instance, this last book. I, I probably had the germ of the idea 10 years ago. I've had it in my head for 10 years. Miss Subways. No, no. This, oh, the, uh, the it, new one. Yeah, it's called
0: Truly Like Lightning. Mm. I did notice, though, that Miss Subways, the title, was mentioned in Bucky Dent.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd had that idea, sure. Yeah, that wasn't a new idea, either. That's another uh, benefit of starting late, is like you get to use all the ideas you had when you were younger. <laughs> the process of writing on a particular day or of starting a Just novel. Just typing. Typing. Just, yeah. I'm a bad typer. I'm a, I'm a one-finger, two-finger <laughs> two typer, but I don't write longhand. I, I do type it out at the mm. computer. And normally what I do is uh, I try to wake up really early, <clears throat> like at uh, 4.35, and I have my espresso, and i use that euphoria i'm i'm very i'm very lightweight with drugs drugs affect me immediately and completely so just like one espresso to me makes me very happy and feel like i'm confidently can go out and write wonderfully and i use that and i i just mm. start writing usually i like to stop before i finish what i'm doing that day so that i can pick up with something at least i know what i'm doing the next day i I don't like to finish whatever it is i was working on that day i like because because to sit down and not know Mm. not know the first couple beats of what you're going after is is really horrible you know Mm. so that's what i do and i i write fast and i write uh i i probably write usually four or five hours you know maybe another coffee in there and then around uh, noon, if I, if if what I'm doing is writing, I'll 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 eat, and then I'll uh, the rest of the day is pretty much done. I mean, mm. I'm just mentally kind of uh, spent at that point. But I feel good. I mean, it's a good it's a good feeling to have. First of all, I like getting up that early. I like the idea that I'm getting a jump on everybody else. Like everybody's <laughs> yeah. asleep, and I'm here and I'm writing. So all, all, already, I feel like I'm I'm ahead. Mm. You know, just by sitting down.
0: Mm. And, and you mentioned beats um yeah. rhythm of course is a big part of I'm sure your day to day and both your acting work yeah. and how,
1: how do you think about rhythm in your life It's just very personal you know it's like when you edit a piece or you know speaking of music as well it's uh it's just I'm always amazed you know not everybody's on the same page and and it's but it's very clear when you edit film or television with somebody. And you can just differ by a millisecond of when you want to get out of a shot or get into a shot or comic timing or dramatic timing and all that stuff. And it's all rhythmical and it's all very personal and there's no you know, you just you're just looking for people who kind of have the same type of rhythm that Mm. you do in that way. It's very much like heart, not so much science. It is. Yeah. It is. Although people, you know, there's a science to it, I guess, but I guess if you broke it down, there's a science to it. But I don't know what that science says. It's just, it's informed by experience, though. Mm. You know, it's informed mm. by having been in the editing room. It's mm. informed by, uh, by having been an actor, you know, and, and feeling like, what's the right timing of that? You know, when does that happen? And, you know, with comedy especially, there's there's way, uh, everybody talks about comic timing, and that's something that you feel or you don't feel. And that's something that later on when you edit comedy you can either enhance or destroy or create when the actor didn't get that timing. Mm-hmm. All your books are with the same publisher, FSG,
0: yeah. and, and the same editor, Jonathan Galassi. Yeah. What's your relationship with him?
1: Like how do you bounce ideas back and forth? And Well, uh, it's funny. I came to Jonathan through a friend of mine, named Eleanor Che, who's a poet and uh, he's a wonderful uh, editor. And um you know, FSG is a is a great literary publishing house. So I was just very, you know, I thought, holy cow! I don't know if that's <laughs> like in your in your wheelhouse. But Jonathan said, no, I think you're a writer, and I wanna I wanna publish your books. And I think this is a good first one. You know, so- I, I, when
0: I saw the title of the book, I was almost thinking like maybe that was going through your head, like, holy cow! I, I'm Publishing with FSG, <laughs>
1: yeah. Publishing this book with FSG, it has drawings in it for for fuck's sake. And I was like, uh, um, he was very kind with that, you know. And and it wasn't heavily edited. It's a short book, yeah. It's just
0: always interesting because you know, talking about personal and and the connection of rhythm, like the relationship with the editors. So well, deep. so
1: so here is the deal with, with Jonathan. He's always like, you know, I, I got to pitch him first, which is is funny, you know. I got what's the next one. It's like my mother it's a funny thing is, is he lives in my mother's building and my mother <laughs> thinks that jonathan glassy is is god she's always like oh i saw your editor what does he think about your book it's like like not not what nobody else matters but jonathan to my mom <laughs> i saw jonathan in the building what does he think of the book i said well he's publishing it mom so he must think it's okay <laughs> you know i don't know what to say it's like he's publishing it yeah so Pitched him Bucky, he said, okay, you know. I don't think he's a big baseball fan or anything, but uh, we worked through that, and and Miss Subway's as well. Miss Subway's, he was probably most lukewarm of the th- first three, uh, but I think he liked the way I executed it. And then uh, this one, this last one, I went and I, I had this idea for like a science fiction show, and I wrote it out as a pilot. I said to him, you know, what about we do it as a graphic novel? You know, And I pitched him the idea, and he said, I like the idea, but we, I don't know anything about graphic novels. I don't do them. You know, do you have anything else? And I said, I, I, you know, I have this other idea, too. And I pitched him that idea, and he said, oh, I think I, I like that. I like that a lot. I like that idea. And I told my agent, <clears throat> and then my agent, Andrew Blanner, he called like two weeks later, and he said, why don't you write that up as a proposal, and we can get it. We'll get a contract from FSG. And I said because then I'll have to write it. You know, that <laughs> if I accept any money from them, then yeah. I then I'll actually have to write that book. So you wrote the first three more on spec, or yeah, okay, yeah, well, exactly, yeah.
0: I think it's interesting in connection to your acting work that a lot of the roles you've played have been writers. Mm. Could you talk about that, like the fictional writer versus the real life yeah. David Duchovny, right?
1: Yeah, yeah yeah I don't know I don't know why that is I've, I've thought about that or been asked about that too it's uh, all I can say is there's nothing more boring than portraying a writer on screen not to the actor but to the viewer I mean to, to watch to watch a writer write but usually they have very colorful lives well that's the As, lie that's yeah. the lie yeah. you know uh, <laughs> uh, Tom Kapenos who's the creator of Californication he said this is a total fantasy of mine that a writer would be considered attractive to women first of all (laughs) and that people would be interested in what he does and and how he thinks so in a way it's like writers i think often that's their revenge Mm. is to to write stories in which writers matter
0: (laughs) in the real in the real world I think your, your first writer character, at least the one that I could find, yeah, was from uh, New Year's Day in 1989. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that would be the and, first, and, and and that's, this, that's the first job I there, did. There's so. this line. Was he a writer? That, you
1: know, I've written poetry, and I oh. write fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he had a job. I think, <laughs> I think he was unemployed. <laughs>
0: uh, and I loved how how another role of yours around this time you... you yeah. We're on some daily show or late night show, joking uh-huh. that you know you were club goer number three. Oh, that, that's true. In, yeah. in a bad influence from 1990.
1: Yeah, well, I was saying I was I named my kids after roles, so a uh, roles that meant something to me. So I, I I said you know one of my first jobs was very important to me. You know when I first came out to Hollywood, so I'm naming my first son Club Goer Number Two. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think the first role of yours that really really stood out is like. Not only exemplary of your, your your talent as an actor, but really one that I think nationally people noticed was in Twin Peaks with with Denise. Yeah, I'm curious about how you think about that now in this this current moment. Um, so strange. I, I think I think we should say here that Denise is a transgender woman. Is she though? I mean, she's a transvestite. I don't know. I mean, it was yeah. never it
1: was never made clear. And it's
0: interesting because the, the writing about that role now is all over the internet. And, right. I, and um, Samantha Allen, who is transgender, mm-hmm. wrote an essay in the Daily Beast a couple of years ago saying that to this day, it may be the most tender portrayal of friendship between a transgender person <laughs> and someone who knew them before transition. Mm. And it was first aired in
1: 1990. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting to, to do it again uh, a couple of years ago. And I did read some stuff about how I was given slack as a cisgendered male to be allowed to play it because, you know, i had kind of played it mm-hmm. so long ago and it was the same role. But there's no way that a cisgendered actor would play that role now, you know, which I find interesting uh, and lucky that I was able to, to do it. I I, I felt just as as an actor back then i mean it was third or fourth job or whatever i, I remember my thought process going into it just trying cuz cuz the only backstory that i had for the character was it was in the the scripts which was that he was working for the drug enforcement agent and <laughs> this is so ridiculous he was trying to bust this dealer who would only sell to transvestites <laughs> that was the, yeah exactly it's like this is the world of twin peaks and this is like the monologue that i have of, of why i show up and see kyle McLaughlin, and why i show mm. this guy that he used to know why i show up in a dress so i'm telling him my story what happened since you last saw me well i was working with the dea and we were trying to bust this dealer who would only who'd only deal to uh, transvestites you're supposed to like let that slide and so i I put on the clothes, and I found that it—I felt free or liberated, mm. or I, I, it suited me. Mm. And uh, that was really all I had to go on. And then I—I I just approached it that way. It wasn't about sex, and it really wasn't about gender to me. It was about the feeling that the clothes had given this guy, and then this—this this identity that he had felt was his once he put. You know, it was just mm. like—that's really the only way I approached it. I didn't—I wow. didn't—I didn't approach it as a a b or c yeah. or d or whatever i approached it as a human being finding something out about themselves and sharing it with an old friend it must have felt so freeing to just not pay attention to
0: any external factors or what society or politics or anything at the time would have
1: told you to do um yeah i honestly you know as an actor you can't have any kind of a judgment not that not that i as a person i don't have a judgment on it but i recognize that many people do that's what the struggle is about but as an actor you know famously you know you you don't you don't you can't judge mm. you just have to try to inhabit you know and uh getting back to my father it was <laughs> it was funny because it was probably the first like you mentioned, New Year's Day, you know, I'd, and I'd done, that was an independent movie that nobody would have seen, really. A hundred, 300 people might have seen it. But Twin Peaks, first time I'd be on television and, and, you know, millions of people would see me. I had no concern, you know, what I was wearing or who I was. I was an actor. You know, this is, this is the job. I think this is, I'm doing the best that I can here. <clears throat> but my father had had a heart surgery in Boston, right when it was airing. My father didn't really know anything about my life as an actor. Didn't really understand what I was trying to do or where I was going. He just knew he knew that I wasn't an academic. He was like, I, the kid I knew. He, he left when I was 11. So he's like, the kid I knew. Yeah, I didn't see him being in, in a university his whole life. He'd undergone the surgery, and I went to visit him up in Boston. And he had like a legal pad by his bedside he was very sore from the surgery in his throat, so he couldn't speak. So he had a pad where he would write down his thoughts, and or his requests to the nurses. And um, he he uh, I got there, he was sleeping, and I saw this pad by his bed, and and it said, uh, "My my feet are cold. Uh, I'm thirsty." My son plays a transvestite on television. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it was like I think he wanted them to turn on the. T- he was saying, "Please turn on the TV," and he was like, "They were like, why? <laughs> so, this
0: sounds very random, right?"
1: And they and I and I'm sure they thought he's taken like too many Percocet here or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then,
0: of course, your role in the X Files, which which you played consistently from '93 to 2001. Yeah. Now, looking back, you know almost. Uh, 30 years. And of course, you you kind of return to the character 25 yeah. years on. What does that role, the Agent Mulder role mean to you in your own personal life, but also tr- sort of looking at where we are in society? I know you touched on it briefly with talking about what's happening in Hollywood and what people are really paying attention to and how X-Files was sort
1: of ahead of its time in that way. Right. Well, personally, I mean, I mean it, it meant everything to me as a as an actor and as a professional person, and that it gave me success, it gave me financial stability, it gave me so many opportunities that I wouldn't have had 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 I not been on a, a show that was seriously a, a global phenomenon. There, there are good good aspects and bad aspects of that, obviously, but the the good greatly outweigh weigh the bad. Mm. The second part of your question was
0: sort of how you view the X-Files in contemporary
1: culture today? Well, I think, you know, I I think we touched on that. I mean, even if you look at, like, horror movies, too. I mean, you look at, at, you know, the resurgence of horror and sci-fi thrillers. They're all, that's what the X-Files was. I mean, we were a different show every week. We were a horror show. We were a sci-fi show. We were a government procedural, depending on when when you tuned in so i think we kind of in in a way not staked out that territory but we were playing in those territories that are now very popular and that doesn't mean anything it's just a fact mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. i'm not taking credit or i'm just looking at it objectively and and, and seeing oh that's it's it's interesting just to, to look at that i mean i, f- I find it also interesting to think about what Chris Carter did, like making an FBI agent a hero in a, in a time, you know, me as a, I'm not really a child of the 60s, I'm a little too young for that, but I definitely inherited that don't trust the man, you know. <laughs> and so for me to play a heroic FBI agent, to me that that was like, yeah, that's not really my bag, you know. I don't see myself as a cop. And it's just interesting to to look at where we are now, where we've been waiting for Robert Mueller to save us. And we've been, even before that, we've been relying on, you know, these military chiefs of staff to be the adults in the room. You know, we kind of come full circle where when I grew up, it was like, you don't trust the, the military. Mm. And now in the age of Trump, those are the only guys who seem to be adults in in that in that place. So, so it's a very kind of, queasy position for i guess people like me to be in where it's like oh my god thank god for robert Mueller. robert muller lifelong republican you know was the head of the fbi this is not this is not what you thought of as the social savior mm. there's that uh but then again you know i i think i got to play Mulder as kind of a, a rebel against the bureaucracy of the fbi you know even if it was a silly rebellion which is like hey right. aliens exist or whatever he's saying right uh, he's saying there is a deep state. <laughs> <laughs> there's a deep state that's prohibiting you from knowing the truth. And right. he's he's the rebel who's going to expose it.
0: Yeah. And there's something about that character. There's a, a tension, especially between Mulder and Scully, that's, that's kind of amazing that, that I, I feel like there's this healthy tension that was created in the show yeah. that is in part why it lasted so long. Yeah. You talk a little bit about that, like how how you viewed that tension between yeah. the characters.
1: Well, I think I, I think the creation of the tension was a a result of having to spin out so many stories. You know, the, the if it was a movie, maybe they would have jumped into bed by the middle mm. of the second act and bro- <laughs> yeah. bro- broken up by the by the end and come to co- some kind of agreement by the end of the movie, but. Since it was a series, it was there was this kind of dance of intimacy that mm. had to go on well for years and years. That nobody knew when we started, but we knew that we were gonna have to stay apart, mm. yet be together. And in fact, there was a character in the pilot who was cut out of the pilot. The footage is shot, who is Scully's uh, boyfriend. Like mm. there's a phone call on the pilot where I think I call her in the middle of the night and I say, you know, the bad guys have, you know, destroyed all the evidence or whatever. And the scene was shot like there's two shots of her and, you know this guy in bed with her, and there 's a shot after they hang up where he says "Who is that?" and she says oh it 's that new guy Mulder that i 'm working with and he 's just totally cut out. They just use a single of her yeah. on the phone, so I think they realized early on that it was going to be some kind of uh primary relationship mm. but it wasn 't going to be sexual. Mm. Did you ever imagine that this this
0: character would, on some level, I see, you shake your head. It's almost like you know the question I'm about to ask. But did you did you imagine this character would turn you in a way into a sex symbol? Like, like have Maureen Dowd in 1995 describe you as the first internet sex symbol with hair, mm, or yeah. or or hear? You know, Thank I, you, Maureen. Yeah, I, I heard you described it as a Hollywood <laughs> hunk on a uh, a radio interview. Yeah,
1: yeah, but, you know. It, I can't say that I'm surprised because it's not something I ever thought about. So it's like to say that I was surprised would mean I I would be sitting around thinking, mm. gee, I wonder what role is gonna turn me into a sex symbol. <laughs> it wasn't Denise, maybe it's this. So I think it was like his lack of interest in sex in a way that made him mm. uh a sex symbol. Yeah. You know? And in 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 a way
0: like Hank Moody was the opposite of yeah, that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that was like, you know, conscious not not necessarily in terms of the uh, of the sexuality of it, but it was I was conscious of, of of playing not just a character, but of inhabiting a world that was at the opposite side of the spectrum of, of the X Files. Although I I had often tried to infuse humor in in the X Files, yeah, and I guess I probably went the other way and would try to infuse drama in Californication. I mean, that's just my nature as a as an artist or as a performer yeah. is to bring the opposite in, right? And I, I think this
0: through line of like. Humor, sex, sexuality—it's really interesting. Like I read that you taught Prince Charles what a booty call is. Well, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to. You know, just the occasion arose. These funny sort of <laughs> circumstances, and and of course in Bucky Dent, there's this this whole father exchange around the idea of cock talk and yeah. the, the trauma therein. Yeah. Um, in Miss Subway's the book opens up literally with the male gaze and yeah. and man spreading. Yeah. Um. I, I, there's this line you describe as the hedge fund simo- simulacrum of masculinity, which yeah. I thought was particularly adept <laughs> <laughs> for this moment. And, and uh, Miss Subways was also the first place I
1: ever read the phrase apres sex. <laughs> <which> I- <laughs> is is that because I made it up or is this? That- <laughs> I'm sure it exists. It must exist. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever read it either. I, I kind of hope I made it up. <laughs> <laughs> um. So,
0: in terms of how you think about those things, like humor and sex, is that something that's been like intentionally in your work, or is that just part of your your? Day-to-day? Not intentionally.
1: I mean, I think you know, as a as a, yeah. I mean, to talk about humor is is is, is very risky, right? Because there's nothing less funny than to try to explain <laughs> why something's funny. Yeah. But I think what is funny is what what is human, mm. you know. What, what joins us all, what is, when we are exposed for the animals that we are, that is, could be the saddest in King Lear or the funniest, you know, so, mm. to me, I guess that's what it, it, it comes down to. And also, I mean, you know, in terms of Californication, I mean, I didn't write any of that, but, but clearly, you know, sex makes people uncomfortable in some way in, in the civilized world, so there's a lot of, Energy to be mined from from those kinds of uh, scenes and mm. and not a sex scene but just the yeah in in the in the area I don't know I see again I mean I feel like it's just <laughs> not it's just not funny it's interesting you mentioned this
0: sort of like what it means to be human or, or or getting in touch with that and the there were two things in doing research for this interview and this is sort of where I want to close that related to to. Trauma, at least in my mind, that I could see you going through in life. One very obvious. One was was your your daughter when she was quite yeah, young. She right. had an, an illness that right. completely uh, transformed right. how you think about life. Period. Uh-huh. Um, the other being, and and I might be going a little uh, too far here, but I know in the film you did, uh, The House of D. Mm-hmm. Robin Williams was in it yeah and Robin Williams is one of these larger than life characters and the role he played in that film is full of I mean it's just an, it's him at his best I mm-hmm, think mm-hmm. this really incredible character. Um, I guess trauma is the question how I'm sure when Robin passed and left us that was that was a very traumatic moment for you um, just understanding mm-hmm. him in that yeah role and probably in connection to, to yeah. your personal life. How have you handled both of those two sort of polar things, the young child, very sick, and then a, a good friend, somebody who is a legend, who you admire, who was this larger than life figure passing on?
1: Um, I think generally as, as a, I guess, as an artist or as somebody who wants to live, you, you, you take whatever wounds you get from life and we're all going to get them. And you try and, uh, you try and find the strength in those things in overcoming them or in processing them or in turning them into something else. And in the case of my daughter West getting ill when she was nine months old, you know, I guess I turned it into Bucky fucking Dent, you know, which is really Mm. the heart of of that book. And, and which is why I say to my kids, you know, when I'm gone, read the books. So, <laughs> so in, in there she'll, she'll see how, she, what she meant to me. Mm. So um, in terms of, of Robin, it's not just Robin. Uh, Robin certainly was, as you describe him, Robin, Robin was a, a wildly uh, energetic person, had, had so much uh, imagination um, and speed and, and energy and um, and pain, which I don't know that I knew where it came from, but it came from somewhere. But I don't know if you know, but uh, the, the other actor in the film uh, was, uh, was named Anton Yelchin, and he died uh, mm. about two years ago now at the age of 24 or 25. Uh he he was he was run over by his own car you know he had parked it on a on a hill and he was checking something and it it went into reverse and pinned him oh. and and killed him and he was he was just a beautiful person and a wonderful actor and an artist a, an artist across the board like he was a musician he was directing his first film when he was killed he uh, was a great actor, had, a, had a, a really great career. And I think uh, there, there's actually a documentary that his parents have done about him that, uh, that, it, that, that is going to come out. But, um, you know, it just doesn't make sense, right? It's like that's, that's just the way life is. It just doesn't make sense. So there's never going to be a story that I can tell that makes it okay mm. for Anton to mm. have died that young. Mm. But maybe we try. You know, because what we do is as human beings, I think we we tell stories to one another cuz there's no sense to be had out there, really. I mean, it's just like it's just the world and we're just happen to be animals on it and uh we're we're trying to tell each other that, you know, there's a god up there who's taking care of us or not and or there's climate change is coming or not or You know, there's all these stories that we're telling ourselves that are important. And uh, it's kind of what Bucky Dent is about. It's about, look, there's no truth. There's no no answer. There's only stories that we tell each other that are either make us better people or worse people. You know, there are stories that we tell each other that make us kinder and more loving or more animalistic and more violent. And a, a lot of this,
0: I think, too, is this notion of the transference of energy. So taking energy from someone, say, Robin or Anton, or or, or your your young child who yeah. thankfully survived yeah. and um, is alive. H- how do you think about energy in that context? And now, as a, a musician and an actor and a writer, yeah. Yeah. Um, how are you transferring that energy into your own work?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I just think I think that. W- that's the only thing that kind of survives is you know, energy gets dissipated, obviously. And again, I hate to come back to that same example, but I guess it's in my head. Is like I put a lot of energy you've got three books, my three mm-hmm. books right there in front of me. I put a lot of energy into making those things. So that energy's gone. But these things somehow they retain a certain kind of energy. They're like they're like magic crystals or something. You know?
0: <laughs> You're back to magic. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. And 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 so you can access that energy again so it's not lost in some way. And you can, you know, you can look at a movie again and you can feel that creative energy again. You can, you can watch a series and feel energized by the energy that was put into that. Now you're getting it. And I think that's all, that's all we have. You know, that's, that's the game that we're all playing. We're just, we're just these energetic beings that are running around expending you know, the energy that we've been given on this planet uh let's uh, and again it goes back to how what an idiot trump is you know he won't he won't work out because he says you only have so much energy you know stuff like that i mean i I can't get that guy out of my head but it's like that it's like that's what we're here to do is to expend the energy i don't want to say god-given but just we've been given Mm. david this is great (laughs) thanks so much for for that made no sense i know
0: (laughs) thanks for coming thank you Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv.